Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. My name is Scott. If we've never met, I'm the pastor at Christ Church. And uh, would you pray with me as we dive into the scriptures here? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we... Uh, we want to be shepherded this morning. Oh Lord, what a joy it is to feel the shepherd's staff. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no, no evil for your rod and staff that comfort me. Heavenly Father, may we feel as a community your rod and your staff this morning. You are the good shepherd. There is no other shepherd besides you that we want to teach us and direct us and constrain us if need be. The thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. Lord, we turn from all the thieves in our life and we turn to you. We long for your shepherd's staff. Praise you, Lord Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Um, I, I used to work at a Christian camp. I've worked at thousands of Christian camps, I feel like, in my lifetime. Uh, but one of them, we used to do this thing where the kids would all come. And if you've ever been to a camp, in a really good way, camps are just awesome and they're messy. You get thrown out of your rhythm of daily life and all of a sudden you're with all these other sweaty boys and you meet <laughs> Jesus and uh, awesome stuff happens and all your junk gets exposed, stuff you've never talked about with people. can't tell you how many times I've seen a revival in a, in a kid's life because of confession of sin. Um, you hear the gospel for the first time. You realize you're loved. So there's this huge deal where Everything is getting kind of uncovered while at the same time you're feeling the Lord's presence and it's just dirty and sweaty and there's tears and it's messy and it's beautiful. And if you've ever been to a camp or had an amazing experience, you know that what happens is you kind of cool off over time. Six months later, it's like everything's clamped down again. So we used to do this thing where we would have the kids write themselves a letter on the last day of camp, which we would mail six months later, which was really cool. Uh, because it basically took all that good stuff, um, maybe problems they were working through, and also just the love of God, and it kind of put it back on their figurative table, if you will. George Floyd died on May 25th. That was almost three months ago. And that since then, our world and our culture has had a massive racial reckoning. Back in June, we talked about this as a church. Um, we went to prayer vigils. We connected with a lot of other African-American churches. Some of us marched with some African-American churches. But I think it's time for us, um, and I sense this strongly just at the end of July and coming into August, that we need a, just a little bit of a letter from camp revisitation. Many of us would love for all this stuff to just kind of subside and it, to go back to normal, in scare quotes. And yet for minority communities, that's never an option. The gaping issues that were exposed by George Floyd's death are still an issue. And also, I know your social media has not moved on. Uh, the world has not moved on. So it's fitting in this month of prayer and fasting where we are doing what God was saying he, Solomon's people could always do in terms of humbling themselves and seeking God's face. It's right for us to revisit the, the subject of race. Um, and this won't be the last time, but I think it's so good for us now to just continue to let the Bible speak into these things. 
So much has been spilled on this topic. There are so many debates about this. Uh, there are so many problems and debates about what the solution. I know many of us in our church are coming at this from many different places and even disagree about these topics. Um, we're not going to turn over all those stones this morning and solve all those problems. Rather, what I think we need from the scriptures is to answer a deeper question. This is what I feel like the Lord has for us this morning, and that is this. What characterizes the Christian witness in these situations and conversations? What does it look like to be salty and light in the middle of this just maelstrom and cacophony and pain and political division? In other words, how does the gospel shape how Christians listen, how Christians speak, how Christians react, what Christians do in this Kerbal, current, Kerbal, it's a new word, current global reckoning on race. Um, whether your persuasions politically are left or right, I think all of us are being extremely bullied right now to act in certain ways that are anti-Christian. And so this is an amazing biblical refresher for us. How do we engage our race moment right now as Jesus people? Um, I'm not thinking of this sermon as something I want to add to the blogosphere or like, uh, you know, something to, to say into the world. This is for us as a community. So if you're watching in on this, I'm so glad you're joining us. Uh, I would love for this to be like a family conversation about how are Christ church people going to react and act in this. Uh, this is a biblical refresher for our family. So with that being said, out of our readings this morning, I think there are three characteristics that come out of this uh, that have to do with Christian integrity in these types of situations. Number one, number one, Christians are quick to acknowledge our brokenness. Christians are quick to acknowledge our brokenness. In short, a hallmark of Jesus people is a humility that makes it easy to acknowledge fault. We believe in sin. We believe in it. It's a thing. We believe that our world is broken at every level. And so we're not shocked that someone or something or we are broken. We're just not shocked. And this is very different from our culture because we live in a culture, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, that is terrified to acknowledge fault. And I think we just need to address that. For those of you that live in a more progressive internet world, and we all live in an internet world right now, uh, none of us are actually at the water cooler. <laughs> We're all at an internet water cooler. So whichever virtual water cooler you're at, for those of you who are in a more progressive one, you know how important it is to always show that you're on the right side of history. That phrase gets thrown around a lot, but you get what I mean. We have to constantly demonstrate that we fully understand all the isms and that we are above reproach in wokefulness. Because if not, then someone might have to woke explain something to you. And that's the worst. Uh, if you ever heard of the, the term mansplaining, mansplaining is the phenomenon of men having to condescendingly think they need to explain something to a woman. Woke explaining is when somebody feels like they have to take you aside and say, um, you don't really understand this. You're not enlightened yet. Let me kind of explain how this is supposed to work. It's awful to get woke explained to, and it happens all the time. Or worse than woke explaining is if you're discovered to be out of step 
not the right type of anti-racist, made the wrong type of off-color comment, tried to help, but it was the wrong type of way to help, you could get canceled or publicly slandered. That actually does have serious consequences in workplaces or public positions. I've watched in fascination as Ellen DeGeneres has had her own reckoning moment. And if Ellen isn't safe, who in the world is safe? So in social media at the water cooler, we're constantly looking over our shoulder because of this dynamic. We live and breathe in an environment of defensiveness. Personally, I can't be wrong. I can't be seen to be not in the right. And it turns out keeping the moral high ground is an exhausting full-time job. If you want to keep the moral high ground, you have got to read every new article that comes out every day to realize what new thing is being said. To read, You've got to read this new book. You've got to do this. It's exhausting. And it leads to just fear that you could be wrong, that you might have done something wrong. So we're always defending. We're always nervous. Okay. So I feel like that temptation is more if you live in a more progressive internet world. For those of you who live in a more conservative internet world, you know that the conservative world isn't as concerned with defending wokefulness, uh, which I think is a more individualistic progressive idol. But the conservative world, I think, is more concerned with defending our more corporate national idols. As America and American history and capitalism and the police have been smeared, people have rightly wanted to point out that those things are not all rotten to the core. So. Uh, we want to stop every history book from being burned, every institution from being turned over. And yet, as a result, this has also led to a culture of defensiveness in an unwillingness to admit that there might actually be deep brokenness in these areas. So we get it on all sides here. We're all in this together. We struggle with this. Some of us struggle admitting fault on an individual level, and we're very ready to, to point out fault on institutional levels. Some of us struggle admitting fault on a national level. And then, of course, what happens in our culture war is that we end up just shouting at the other side for the things that they're not willing to admit are wrong or broken. You're wrong here. Yeah, well, you're wrong here. You're a racist. You're a Marxist. And it goes back and forth. Living in a culture of defensiveness is brutal. I hope you can agree with me. It's awful. Keeping the moral high ground is exhausting. In order to do it, you have to warp your sense of honesty and your clarity of vision because you're constantly afraid. It breeds fear. It breeds division. It breeds self-service. But this is where disciples of Jesus play from an utterly different playbook. And for those of you that approach this conversation in politics and our conversation around race just makes you tense let Jesus minister to you right now like you have a knot in your back and he's just going to massage it out. Open your Bible or turn with me in your bulletin to uh, Matthew 7. Interestingly enough, when coronavirus hit, we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and this was the passage that I was going to preach on uh, and I never did. But listen to this. Think about our culture of defensiveness. Think about the fear Hear Jesus, verse 1, chapter 7, Matthew. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Disciples of Jesus are not afraid to admit fault. It doesn't freak us out at all. Disciples of Jesus are not shocked when something broken is uncovered. Our entire faith revolves around a cross, <laughs> literally. The death of our Lord, which happened because we're broken, we're messed up, our world's messed up, and we needed saving. So we're freed from the need to be defensive. We're freed from feeling like we personally have to sweat to keep the moral high ground. Hear me, Jesus holds the moral high ground, not us. Amen? Amen. It's all his. Praise God. And Jesus says to us, you've got a log in your eye. Take that out first. Notice this doesn't mean you can't be critical or find faults elsewhere. I love that Jesus actually allows that in verse 5. Then you'll be able to, to take this back out. So it doesn't mean that we all can't say things or can't be critical of things happening in our culture. It just means that there's an order to it. First, Jesus says, take care of your log, which is disproportionate to the speck that's in your brother or sister's eye. So if someone comes up to you and they're ready for war and they level an accusation against you on social media or you post that you had some coffee one afternoon and somebody comments on it and throws one at you, you could be defensive and you could just pour gasoline on the fire. Uh, again, as my favorite Texas saying goes that some, some pigs just want to wrestle in the mud and they just get, want to get muddy, you know? Um, you could be defensive and pour gasoline on it. You could also, as a disciple of Jesus, who's not shocked and not afraid when somebody points out something, just say, oh, wow, yeah, you might be right. I have a lot of work to do. That doesn't shock me at all. Thanks for pointing that out. It's like a bully on a, on a playground. It's like, what more can I say? I'm like, oh yeah, you're right, I'm sorry. Likewise, if things are being uncovered in our past and current society, in America, around the world that are racially broken, we're not shocked. Yes, America has a deeply broken racial past that comes all the way up to 2020. Yes, the American church has a deeply broken racial past. It does. Yes, Madison as a city has severe racial disparities. Severe. A hallmark of Christian witness is the salty humility that can confess sins. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of virtue. And it is a virtue that our culture does not encourage. The Pharisees didn't encourage it either. They were terrified of that, right? You feel their defensiveness whenever they're talking to Jesus. The Romans did not encourage that either, but Jesus did. And it was interesting and it was weird in the culture of his day. It's just as weird today, but it's just as beautiful. Christians know that we need Jesus. We know our nation needs Jesus. And so we're quick to acknowledge our brokenness. That's why it's important for us, Christ Church Madison, as a community to be this kind of people. To be the kind of people that can pause and acknowledge again that we have a race problem. And just as an aside, this salty Jesus humility is our only hope at unity as a people. 
um, that can come together and worship together. How can we worship together when we live in a culture that's so politically charged and our social media worlds and our newsfeed worlds all encourage us to demonize the other side? The way we do that is, is some, in some sense as simple as Matthew 7. Judge not, lest you be judged. First, take the log out of your own eye. First, get in touch with yourself and the brokenness that you have. If we are all doing that as a community, think about it. If all of us are working hard at judging not, being quick to forgive, being quick to take the log out of our own eye and confess, we absolutely can come together. And I actually think that we can be a beacon of hope, be an example to our world of the power of Jesus in terms of unity. That's number one. Christians are quick to acknowledge our brokenness. Christians are quick to acknowledge our brokenness. Number two, Christians know where to take our brokenness. And this is just as important. Christians know where to take our brokenness. Simply put, what do we do after we see and acknowledge that we or something we are a part of is messed up? What comes next? This is crucial because guilt, I think, is trending. It's been piling up since May 25th. It's like our nation has corporately realized that there's blood on our hands and we want it off. We want to be clean. And I don't say that belittlingly. I say that honestly. I feel that as well. We are all having a reckoning and we don't know what to do with it. And what's happened is that we've run in some ways to some emerging, what I would call maybe cultural high priests, whether they're authors or public intellectuals or celebrities, uh, to tell us how to deal with it. What do we do with this? And in so doing, we've offered these people immense power because the person who controls your guilt controls you. Let me say that again. We have to be really careful with our guilt. The person who controls your guilt and tells you what to do with it controls you. And what we've been handed culturally by these cultural high priests in some ways is a really complicated, exhausting process for us to be pronounced culturally clean. Um, it's almost like a new law. And so think about the law of Moses, you know, those huge swaths of the Old Testament that are all these crazy rules. Um, ultimately, the New Testament said it did not bring life. It could not make somebody righteous by doing all, checking every single one of the boxes and there's kind of a new law today where it's like in 2020, if you want to be righteous, you got to do this. You got to say these things. You got to post about this. You can't not post. You have to post. You got to give money here. And in some ways, I feel like this new law requires perpetual penance and atonement and offers no forgiveness. I think everyone's intentions are really good in this sense. This stuff is not all bad at all. The problem it's just that we've given certain political or cultural ways of thinking that are not kingdom-oriented, ultimately, utter authority in our life. We've looked to it to make, it, uh, make us righteous. And what does that feel like? Turn with me to your Hebrews reading in Hebrews 10. If you're in Matthew, you can flip to the right. Hebrews is kind of towards the end of the New Testament. This is a really powerful passage. If you have your bulletin, just flip to the Hebrews reading in your bulletin. Here's what that feels like. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
It might not look like sacrificial animals and priests in a temple, like this Hebrews passage is talking about. But if we're not careful, as a people confronting immense sin and brokenness, we could get caught in another cycle of penance and legalism with no hope. I'm not the only person that's thinking about this. There's a lot of people, white and black, Christian and non-Christian, who are worried about this in our culture right now. But Christians play from an utterly different playbook. This is what's so amazing. And if you're watching this and you're not a believer, this is an amazing thing, how Christians think and how we process when we know that we're broken, when we know the world we're in is broken. Not only are we so quick to acknowledge it, we know where to take it. And listen, it's not to me. It's not to a Christian version of a cultural high priest. I'm an under shepherd. We have to be careful about that too. So I don't control your guilt. I'm an under shepherd. I'm under the authority of the high priest. And he alone possesses the authority and the wisdom and the compassion to deal with your sin. Look with me at the same passage. So open back up to Hebrews 10 in your bulletin. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then flip with me to verse 19. Just go down a little bit more. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what's the result of all this? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We take our brokenness to Jesus. Hallelujah. This is not the first time, think about this. This is not the first time in history that the gospel has been applied and been preached into and blossomed in a situation of massive racial inequality and injustice. That's literally the story of the New Testament. It's not the first time a people have had to repent. It's not the first time a people have had to forgive. It's not the first time that the blood of Jesus has been looked to in order to tear down an ethnic dividing wall of hostility. Of course, the church has been utterly complicit in so many ways throughout church history. Um, Racial prejudice and abuse have always been a part of the church. It was even in the day of Jesus. And that's part of why Jesus came to preach into the culture that he was in. That's part of the mission of the New Testament is to break down racial prejudice and inequalities that existed in that culture. But when the gospel of our Lord is faithfully taught and obeyed in these situations throughout history, it has a phenomenal and mind-bending track record of restoration and power. Hear me, this is not a cop-out. So this is not like saying we don't need to reform anything because we can just repent in front of Jesus and be forgiven. It's not saying that, and we'll talk about that in a second. What this does mean is that Christians, black and white, should have a seriously unique and powerful witness in today's racial reckoning because we know the one who has authority to forgive sins and to heal the wounded. 
we have all we need in the gospel to step into this situation, to deal with injustice, bloodshed, guilt, shame, and a corporate reckoning. So here's my main exhortation for our church family, uh, just in this point, uh, how we act in Madison, how we act with one another. My exhortation is we must beware of allowing any other new or cultural law to replace the law of Christ. Let's say that again. We must beware of allowing any other new or cultural law to replace the law of Christ. Just like the Mosaic law, that's not the answer either. They bring no life and we will just be yoking ourselves to another burden that can never take away sins. So disciples of Jesus, we're not shocked by brokenness. We're so quick to acknowledge it and admit it. We're so ready to confess our sins. We actually love confessing our sins. That's why we do it every Sunday. And we know where to take it. We don't get to our sins and then just suffer under it. We know where to take our sins, and that is to the cross of Christ. Third, third, Christians do something about our brokenness. So we're quick to acknowledge it. We know where to take it, and we do something about it. The mark of spiritual maturity is not just saying the right words. It's not just going to church, even though that matters a lot. It's not just believing the right things. The mark of spiritual maturity is obedience and action. Jesus says stuff like, blessed are they who hear these words of mine and do them. In the book of James, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, which is a great time of Bible. You're like, whoa, what is religion that's pure and undefiled? And he says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Essentially, you can boil down what he says to justice and holiness. When John the Baptist, you remember John the Baptist, crazy guy in the Bible who comes before Jesus, when he's baptizing folks and he's calling people to repent, He's calling out very massive cultural national sins. And people are coming out and they're repenting, but he doesn't stop there. And Luke 3, as all these people are reacting to what he's saying, kind of like our nation has, our church has, our national church, he says to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Fascinating phrase. Don't just repent, now bear fruits that are coming out of your repentance. It's like plant repentance in your heart and it's gonna bear a fruit. Something is gonna grow up from it. And when they say, well, what do we do? Here's what he says, and I'm quoting now. Um, they, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Think of like the worst accountants, white collar criminals right now in our day. People who are at the helm of institutional injustice and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what about us? What an amazing fruit John the Baptist's preaching ministry had all these people. Soldiers say, what do we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. You hear how tactile that is? How specific that is? These people may have thought that the new movement of God that was happening just had to do with spiritual stuff, that it was kind of a, like a desert thing. Remember, John's the guy who like ate bugs and honey in the desert 
But lo and behold, it affected food and clothes. What? Accounting. Even the military. It affected the military. But this is a hallmark of the gospel. Just like Jesus' people are so salty in the sense that they're so quick to be humble and confess sins, and they're so quick to know, oh no, I know exactly where to take my sin and my shame and my guilt. So a tactile hallmark of the gospel is that when the kingdom of God comes into a community, it's both heard and it's seen. It's like Jesus saying to John the Baptist, go and tell them what you see and what you hear. So it's not enough to just address it or to say that Jesus forgives us and can heal us, even though that is absolutely true. Jesus does those things, but then repentance bears fruit. It compels us to action. Christians do stuff. And when the church has not done stuff and been a part of this type of gospel kingdom justice, it's not the fault of the gospels, it's ours. So what do we do um, as a practical application of this? There's so much to be done. There's so much to talk about. But I want to make sure that this doesn't remain completely ideological, even though I can't go into every aspect of this conversation. I just want to give you two small applications about something that you could do. The first is this. Follow up with a person you met or follow up on a cause that compelled you earlier this summer. Um, our conversation on race was massive. Think about my camp analogy with like, you're in that week where there's just so much happening and you're feeling things and noticing things for the first time and you're seeing other people for the first time and it's this huge thing. I mean, in June, there was probably a greater mixing of white and black churches in Madison than that's ever happened. We rub shoulders a lot. I rub shoulders with different people in our city than I ever have before in my time of living in Madison. You may have met somebody different than you. You may have had conversations with somebody in our city different than you. And there were also a lot of causes that had greater exposure in this summer. That's been one of the gifts of this time. Um, things that were issues that maybe didn't even have to do with George Floyd. But when the nation was listening, people perked up and said, you know, started talking about incarceration, um, educational reform, issues in business, homeownership. There were so many things that I was exposed to that I had not been before. Here's my simple encouragement. And I know when preachers give like a little uh, application like this, sometimes it's like, yeah, but I actually want you to think about this. Reach out to that one person you met. It could be weird. It could be cold call. You can be like, hey, we bumped into each other. I would love to grab coffee with you. Follow up on that one organization or that cause that really moved you. It could be as simple as going to their website, seeing if there's a way to get involved or some way that you can learn more about that issue. If you felt like the Holy Spirit was pricking your heart, maybe this is something that you need to do. Did you see how um, varied John the Baptist's application were to all those people? He didn't give them one thing to do. They were like, what about me? And John was like, do this. Well, what about me? So for each of us, it's going to be different. But follow up on that one thing. Let me tell you what, what it is for me. When we were at our Juneteenth celebration, I struck up a good conversation and had a friendship with another black pastor in town who we exchanged cards and he said he would love to get coffee. And I am following up on that relationship. So that's something that ugh, came out at our camp, if you will, experience of all having a greater sensitivity to these things. But now I want to follow up on that. I don't want that to just, just blow over. I want to have deeper partnerships with our church and all those things. So what about you? Something to pray into this week. If you feel like nothing comes to your mind, maybe pray into that. Lord, put somebody in my path who's different than me. 
different socioeconomically, racially different, uh, even different views politically. How could I practice being humble like this with another person and having a different conversation? Lord, give me a cause that you really want me to be a part of. Um, our care team has been investing a lot in building connections and uh, Lynn Chase has been doing an awesome job with so many other people in our church. We've kind of given that a break this month as we're retooling it for the fall, but know that that's something we want to commit to as a church and we'll be doing more of that this fall as well. Here's a second application. The first thing is, is there, is there a person or is there something that you can just take one more step towards? You don't have to conquer the world overnight. Um, that would be an application of this. Second application is my shameless but totally legit plug for what we're doing as a church, and that is to pray, fast and pray. We're in a month of prayer and fasting. This Wednesday, we're gonna pray and fast over these issues. Don't let anyone tell you that prayer is a cop-out. It's not really doing something. Yes, it is. Did you hear what God said in the second Chronicles reading that Grace read? Let me just read one of the verses. If my people, this is God speaking, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This was a really special time in history with the temple being built and Solomon and everything, but I am not willing to say that that Promise from God is just for them, just for that time, just for that place. The Lord doesn't mean that for us. Yes, he does. So join us in fasting and praying this Wednesday. We had an awesome prayer time this past week, praying into coronavirus and a bunch of other things. It was really profound for me. Um, if you want to learn how to do that, reach out to me. I'll, it's You get the Zoom link on our newsletter. Just reach out to me if you don't know how to participate in that. But join us. In conclusion... Church family, there is a lot to do and a lot to say right now. So much. There's a lot of emotions involved in here, I know. There's a lot of political strings attached that are going to get pulled more tautly as the year goes on. There's a lot of debates and there is deep pain and there's deep anger. This will not be solved overnight. But as we engage these issues as Americans and also, and more importantly, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what does it look like for our family to have these conversations and to live in this city that God has put us? At least for now, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus' people are quick to acknowledge our brokenness. Jesus' people know where to take our brokenness. And Jesus' people do something about our brokenness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.